Thanks, Pastor Brent. It's an honor to get to be here with you today. It truly is. I was with you a couple of years ago, I think two or three years ago, and you weren't in near as cool a space as you're in now. You were in the old setup takedown mode, which I know all of us that have been involved in church planning know what that's about, but it's a joy to see what God's provided for you and how he's allowed you to enjoy this. But let me just challenge, I know you just moved in, I think in August or something, so it hadn't been very long. The, the temptation is you get to this point, and you're like, whew, we arrived, we made it. But I want you to know, this isn't the end, this is just the beginning of what God desires to do in and through you. If you believe that, say amen. Hope you believe it more than that. If you believe that, say amen. So I wanna first bring you greetings from thousands of church planters all over North America. I do get the privilege of leading what's called SEND, and I enunciate the D, SEND Network, because if I say it too fast, it sounds like I'm president of SEND Network. And I was president of that one too before Christ, like a lot of you in the room. But it's SEND Network, and we focus on planting churches in North America. Networks don't plant churches. Denominations don't plant churches. Churches plant churches. But we come alongside churches and assisting them. And last year, I had the privilege of seeing 745 new churches planted in North America. And so I want you to know, every time you give here at Keystone, you don't give to a church. You give through a church as an investment in the kingdom of God being expanded in cities and nations. And one of the ways you do that when you give here is you support what we do at Send Network. And I'm so grateful. I wish I could tell you the story of all these planters and what God's doing all over North America. But you are a part of something so much bigger than just what's happening here. And thank you for understanding that. Uh, I want to today share with you a premise that really was a rally cry in the early days of our church that I think really is a word of God for you as you begin this week of prepare. I'm so thankful for how God's laid it on the heart of your pastor and your team to take some days and just set them aside to kind of prepare our hearts as we look into a new year for all that God desires for us to do and to be. And the rally cry that God birthed in our church when we began 23 years ago in Las Vegas was this, we don't pray before we work, prayer is the work, then God works. Let me say it one more time, we don't pray before we work, because that's what we normally do, right? We, we say, God, would you bless our activity? Lord, would you bless what we're gonna do? God, would you bless our plan? Would you bless our strategy? And then we go out and try to execute. We don't pray before we work, prayer is the work, then God works. Let me tell you where that came from. So, and I told you this story a couple of years ago, but I want to do it again just because I know there's so many new people. And also, I know that you don't remember every sermon that we preach up here. So I'm going to tell it again, all right? Um, don't worry, we don't remember them all either, and we <laughs> preach them. So, um, God called my family in 1999 to put our yes on the table and relocate our family from North Alabama, Tennessee area all the way to Las Vegas, Nevada. I was minding my own business. I was a senior associate pastor of a wonderful church. God, through Luke chapter four, Jesus said this, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. I saw some stuff in Jesus that was not in me, this passion for the kingdom of God to be expanded and 
My wife and I knelt down in our living room and said, Lord, yes. We don't know where, we don't know when, we don't know what, but the answer is yes. Two weeks later, a church from Woodstock, Georgia reached out to me, said, Vance, we believe God's calling our church to start a church in the fastest growing city in North America, Las Vegas, Nevada. And he said, God's put it on our heart that you're to be the planter and pastor of that church. Two weeks earlier, we said yes. Two weeks later, God fills in the blank with Las Vegas. Now, you got to understand, I'm from North Alabama. If you're from North Alabama, you don't go to Las Vegas. And if you do, you don't tell anybody, right? <laughs> like where I'm from, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from there. Like it's close. But as soon as Las Vegas rolled off of his lips, I knew that God had called our family there. So we packed everything we owned, moved to Woodstock, Georgia first. We moved east first because we believe churches plant churches. We wanted to be sent out of that church, spent a year in that fellowship, and then were sent out to Las Vegas, Nevada. We arrived in Las Vegas in December of 2000, two days before Christmas, 23 years ago. After a week on the field, my telephone rings. On the other end of the line is a lady named Letty Peralta. Letty was from the Philippines. She said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. Here's what she proceeded to tell me. She said, I'm from the Philippines. I moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. While living in Hong Kong, I met an American family, moved in with them, became the caretaker of their home. She said, over a period of months, that family became like my extended family, so much so that when they relocated back to America, they took me with them. I got all the paperwork, and I moved with them as a part of their family to America. She said, that family settled in a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia, called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I visited a church called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, and I heard the gospel and the kingdom of God like I'd never heard it before. And she said, after hearing that, God radically changed my life. But she said, I only got to go there about six times. And then my family got uprooted again. We worked for a major computer corporation and they moved us to Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, Pastor, I've been in Las Vegas for a year and a half and I've prayed every single day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? Now, a week earlier, my family loaded everything we owned in a green Dodge minivan in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, drove 2,000 miles across the country to Las Vegas, Nevada. None of us even knew Lady Peralta existed on planet Earth. When I heard that story on the phone, I knew something instantly. We didn't move to Las Vegas to start anything. We moved to Las Vegas to get in on something that God had started long before we got there and was going to continue to do long after we were off the scene. We'd just simply been invited to get in on it for a season and a period of our lives. When we heard Letty's story, man, that's when God birthed that rally cry. We don't pray before we work. Prayer is the work. Because 23 years later, that church that was planted there in Las Vegas called Hope Church, we've now baptized almost 5,000 new believers into that fellowship. That church has 54 languages spoken in that fellowship. So when you see that church on a Sunday morning, it looks like what heaven's going to look like in Revelation chapter 5. It's tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. It's, it's black and white and brown and it's, it's uh, all the different nationalities. It's just a beautiful expression of the kingdom of God. That church has had the privilege of partnering to plant 80 churches out of our church in the western United States, sent hundreds of people out of our fellowship. That church has 
as missionaries now serving on four or five continents around the world who've planted their lives on the other side of the world. That church is engaged in the city in the arenas of foster care and the fight against human trafficking and homelessness and poverty. The kingdom of God's never gonna be the same again in the city of Las Vegas. And I get a call a week, Pastor Brent, from some church planner or some pastor. Man, how does a white guy from Alabama move to Las Vegas, Nevada, plant a multi-ethnic church that's touching the nations for the glory and honor of God? And I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm just trying to be honest. One lady from the Philippines asked God to do it for a year and a half. And for 23 years, we've ridden a wave of the favor of God's activity because one woman didn't stop praying. I want you to not only see that principle fleshed out in my personal life, I want you to see it pressed out in history. And then we're going to get the scripture. And I want you to see it in scripture. If you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to get there in just a minute. I want you to go back with me in time to 1857. In 1857, there was a man in New York City on Fulton Street who decided to call some people together to begin to seek God for revival and awakening. In 1857, a revival broke out in the United States of America. We now call it, looking back in history, the Second Great Awakening. In 1857, over a period of 18 months, one million people in America became followers of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. That'd be like today over the next year and a half, 10 million people in America becoming devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Anybody ready to see something like that happen today? Amen. You know, the problem is we just don't expect God to do that kind of stuff anymore. But here's what I want you to know. The same God that was God in 1857 is the same God who's God today. Amen. A million people in 18 months in 1857, but the revival didn't stop there. It, it continued to spread over the years. And by 1904, 1905, it had crossed the ocean and gone to Wales. And in Wales, a revival broke out there, so much so that in a period of six months in Wales, a very small country, 100,000 people had come to faith in Jesus Christ. It went from Wales in 1904 down to India in 1905. In 1905, a revival broke out in India, and 8,000 people a day were coming to faith in Jesus Christ in India. But it didn't stop there. In 1906, 1907, it spread to North Korea. In North Korea, a country that we know today for being a communist regime that is a wicked dictatorship that kicks Christians out of the country. In 1906, 1907, a revival broke out in North Korea. And in a period of just a few months, 80,000 people became followers of Jesus Christ. And then it spread to China in 1927. 1927, it started in the Shantung province in China, and a movement of God broke out in Shantung, China that was so powerful, as many as 40 to 45,000 people per day were becoming followers of Jesus Christ, and that revival lasted for decades. Now, if I had a map up here with the, the map of the world, and we started over here in North America in 1857. What I just described for you over a period of 70 years literally goes from one end of the map all the way to the other. In a period of 70 years, a season of revival swept literally around the world and ushered millions and millions of people into the kingdom of God. You know what all those revivals had in common? Every single one of them began in desperate, united prayer. Before the one in 1857 in America, people started gathering on Fulton Street in New York City and for two years prayed every day 
for God to move mightily. And that prayer meeting began to spread to Philadelphia and Boston and Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia. And then revival broke out. In Wales, they prayed for five years. Five years of daily, united, desperate prayer. In India and in North Korea, they prayed for two years for God to move mightily. In China, there were four years of prayer meetings leading up to the 1927 Shantung revival. Here's a quote I want you to see by a man named Andrew Murray. Listen to what he said. Intercession is the chief means appointed by God to bring the great redemption within the reach of all. The way God has chosen to move in the world is in response to the prayers of his people. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe God is on mission in this world? Let me see your hand. You can put them down. Hey, I want you to know something. God is more than on mission in the world. We're living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. You didn't hear what I just said, because if you did, you'd have said something. So I'm going to give you another shot at it. I just said we're living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. Now, here's what that means. God birthed your church for such a time as this, not just so you could have a cool place to worship on the weekend, but so that you could leverage everything he's entrusted to you to join in the greatest movement of the gospel in the history of the world. But here's what I'm telling you. God has sovereignly ordained that he will only work in response to the prayers of his people. If we don't pray, he will not move. Wait a minute, Pastor. (laughs) Are you saying God needs us? That's not what I'm saying at all. God is God. That means God can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it how he wants to do it. But here's what I'm telling you. God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. You want to find any move of God anywhere in the world? You dig deep enough. You know what you're going to find? When you dig deep enough into that movement, you'll find that the story of every great Christian achievement is really the history of answered prayer you'll find a remnant of God's people crying out to God in desperate prayer. Now, I've shown it to you personally. I've shown it to you historically, and I want to show it to you biblically. 1 Timothy chapter 2. you got to know that this text of Scripture is one where Paul is writing to a young pastor. Paul had planted the church and raised up Timothy, equipped him, and placed Timothy as the pastor of this church, and he's writing to Timothy a letter to show him how to engage and lead the church to engage in the mission of God in the world. Paul writes in the middle of this letter and gives gives Timothy kind of a summary of the whole story of the Bible. I spoke yesterday to the SALT conference that's going on down in Des Moines, 5,000 college students that are there leaning into God's activity. 
And I asked college students today if they remembered what was called Cliff's Notes. When I was in school, there was this thing called Cliff's Notes. Any of the old folks in the room remember the Cliff's Notes? Yeah. I'm sorry to all the educators in the room for bringing it up. I know it's a bad thing. I know it's terrible. But there were times it saved my skin, man. It helped me. If you don't know what Cliff's Notes are, when I was in school, you didn't have iPads and laptops. You had books. And the books were about this thick. And I didn't always have time to read that book. So Cliff's Notes was a version of that book that was about this thick that told you all the important stuff you needed to know about what was in the big book. So I would cheat and read Cliff's Notes often. And if you're a student now, just ignore everything I just said and go read the big book. Amen? In 1 Timothy 2, we find Paul giving Timothy a Cliff's Notes version of the meta-narrative of Scripture. The whole story, Genesis to Revelation. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse three. He writes and he says, this is good and it is pleasant in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is that? That's God's heart towards the peoples of the earth. What you hear in that verse of scripture is the passion of God that every person everywhere come to know him. Listen, I don't care where you are on the theological spectrum. The scripture says God desires every person to know him and to understand who he is and to live in fellowship with him. Is this a universalistic belief that all people will be saved? Absolutely not. It's simply the desire of God that every person come to know him. God longs to know the people that he created. Look at verse number Five, Paul goes on and says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What is that? That's God's gift to the peoples of the earth. Not only is it true that God desires to know everyone, God has made a provision through Christ so that everyone can come to know him. Anyone who desires to know God can put their faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible teaches this very clearly, that all of us have sinned against God, and our sin separates us from God. And there's nothing we can do to earn a right standing before God. No matter how good I try to be, no matter how religious I try to become, I can't undo what has already been done in my life, and that is that I've sinned against the Holy God and it separated me from him. But the beautiful story of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus took all of our sin on himself. On the cross, Jesus died for our sin, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead so that now he can be the mediator that brings us back to God. He removes the sin that separates me from God, reconciles me to God by grace through faith and gives me a relationship with the father. Amen. That's what Paul's saying here. God has a heart to see all people come to know him and God's given a gift in his son so that all people can know him. Look at the next verse, verse seven. Paul says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I never understand why that's in there. I don't know if Paul had a problem with lying in his past. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's what Paul says. Here's God's mission to the peoples of the earth. So God's heart for the peoples of the earth, he desires all people to know him. God's gift in Jesus is so that all people, God's made a provision so all people can know him. And then Paul says, hey, Timothy, we've been appointed. We've been set apart as the church to now take this message of the gospel and preach it to the very ends of the earth. 
Isn't that the whole story of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, that God desires a relationship with us? God's made a provision in his son so we can know him, and now it's our mission to take this message to the ends of the earth? You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you were gonna talk to us about prayer. What does that have to do with prayer? I'm so glad you asked. Everything that I just read for you is sandwiched in between two of the strongest exhortations to pray in the New Testament. Go back and look at verse number one in chapter two. What are the first three words? I'm going to put it up here on the screen. What are the first three words? Say it out loud. Say it one more time. Now, where are we about to go? He's about to say, man, it's God's desire that all people come to know him. And God has made a provision in Christ as a mediator so that all people can know him. And God has appointed us to be pastors and missionaries, to live our lives, to take this message to the ends of the earth. But Paul says, first of all, if we're going to get in on what God's doing, first of all, then he says, what's the next phrase? He says, first of all, then I what? First of all, then I urge that you learn how to clearly articulate the gospel so that you can understand in every situation all the words that you need to be able to communicate. Is that what he says? No. First of all, then I urge that entreaties or supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. Then skip down to verse eight. Look how he closes this section. Verse eight, I desire, what's the next word? I desire then. The word then is a Greek uh, conjunction. It's a, it's, it's a Greek um, uh, I've lost my, my word there, but it's a Greek that connects one sentence to another sentence. And it, it, it's, it, it literally and often is translated, therefore, it means based on what I've just said. Now I want to say this. What did he just say? He just said, God desires to know everyone. God's made a provision in Christ so that everyone can come to know him. And God's appointed us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He said, based on that, let me say this. I want the men. What does he say? I, in every place, the men should what? What does he say? They should what? Pray. Both on the front end of this text and the back end of this text, Paul is challenging them to pray. Let me, let, listen to what Andrew Murray says. Look at it on the screen. God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. Do you hear that? God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. That, he, that God should have made the extension of his kingdom to such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery. You hear what he's saying there? This don't really make sense. That God would orchestrate it in such a way that he becomes dependent on the prayers of his people, that's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. But look what he says. Yet an absolute certainty. 
God calls for intercessors. In his grace, he has made his work, listen to this, dependent on them. He waits for them. Did you know that there are only two continents in the world where Christian, Christianity is declining? Only two. You know what they are? Europe and North America. You get on a plane today, travel with me to Southeast Asia or South Asia, the gospel's exploding. You get on a plane and go with me to North Africa, the gospel's exploding. Go to the Middle East. Did you know that there have been more people come to faith in Christ in Iran in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries combined? There's a people movement to the gospel happening among Persian-speaking peoples right now that's reading like the book of Acts. All over the world, God is moving in power and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet in Europe and right here where we're sitting, North America, where we have the largest churches we've ever had in the history of the American context with fewer people attending church on a percentage basis than we've ever had before, Christianity's shrinking. Why is that? Here's, I believe, the reason why. We're not desperate for God. We've got buildings and budgets and planning center and strategies. We don't need to pray anymore. In the early church, the apostles said, we're going to devote ourselves to two things, prayer and the word. And here's what we do today. We've devoted ourselves to singing in the word. We don't pray anymore when we gather together. If we do pray, it's just to transition things that are happening in the church service, right? We don't pray to pray. We just pray to Move the band on and off the stage now. And I'm not saying that in a condemning way towards you. I'm saying this is the context of the church in North America now. And I'm not saying it's wrong to move stuff while we pray. I'm saying it's wrong to just pray to move stuff. The early church, the global church, the historical church, when they gathered, they prayed. What did Jesus say? My house shall be called a house of what? Did you hear what he said? My house shall be called. Here's what that means. The people out there in Ankeny, Des Moines, Ames, here's what they should say about the church. I don't know everything they do over there, but those people talk to God. You know what that place is over there? <laughs> That's a place where they pray. Those people talk to God, and yet so many times people visit our churches and they hardly even know what it means to talk to God. Out of that text, let me ask and answer two questions and I'll be done. First question, how important is prayer? Paul uses three phrases. First of all, I urge, and then then, or therefore. First of all. It can be translated above all else or let's get first things first. He's about to say, God desires to know every person on planet earth. God's made a provision so people can know him. And he's about to say, God's commissioned us to take this message to the ends of the earth. But if we're gonna get in on what God's doing in the world, let's get first things first. Pray, pray. Then he says, I urge. Now, Paul could have said, I command. He was an apostle, meaning he could have walked into any church and had authority. He could have walked into any church and said, I command you to pray. But that's not the posture Paul's taking here. 
Paul's taking the posture of the coach in the locker room who's challenging the team. He's begging them. He's urging them to give their best. I've had the privilege this past season of being the chaplain for the Las Vegas Raiders, and it's been a roller coaster of a season for our team. About halfway through the season, we fired our GM and head coach, and the head coach that had been there is an offensive genius, but in the locker room, he didn't have control of the locker room, and we'd do the pregame and postgame stuff, and man, the pregame speeches were, it just wasn't, I'm, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, I'm like, coach, if you'll just give me this moment, I can help this team, like... They let that coach go. They bring in AP, Antonio Pierce, and Antonio's just, he's a player. He's a linebacker, played for the Giants, won Super Bowls. And man, when that guy finishes talking pregame, I'm ready to take on hell with a water pistol. Like, let's go. <laughs> the coach in the locker room is urging them. That's Paul here. He said, man, if we're gonna join in God's activity, let's get first things first. I'm begging you, let's get on our knees. Let's cry out to God. Let's get desperate. Then there's that, that then, that therefore. He said, man, if we're really gonna see this happen, we have to pray. S.D. Gordon said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. So if that's how important it is, then lastly, how should we pray? Paul uses several words here to describe prayer. I'm going to give you some statements with each one of them as we bring this to a close. Number one, Paul says we should pray urgently. It's the word supplication. The word supplication is a word that means prayer arising from a sense of need. Knowing what is lacking, we plead with God to supply it. How many of you would agree with me that when you look out on the world today, man, it's broken? The world is broken today. Don't you, you believe that? And we look out on the lostness of the world, the brokenness of the world. What's your response to that? Too often our, our response inside of Christian circles is one of disgust and anger and frustration. And you see it in Christian social media. We run to social media to complain about the world and to, to criticize the world. When what should happen is the brokenness of our world should drive us to our knees with a sense of urgency. Here's the reality. You can accomplish more in five minutes of prayer than five hours of posting online. You see, the reality is legislation won't change men's hearts. We're about to have an election year. I, I dread it because I know what happens to the church. Man, we get all focused on politics. It's a big deal for your state, I know, because you are one of the first states in the primary season and all that you go through and all that happens. And man, we get so focused on this thing of politics like politics is going to somehow solve the problems. Listen, politics and legislation is never going to solve our problem. The, the Savior is not coming riding in on the elephant or the donkey, right? Like he's not coming on either one. If you put your faith in that, you've put your faith in that which is gonna fail you every single time. Legislation won't change people's lives. Legislation is not gonna heal the brokenness of our world. Politicians won't heal the brokenness of our world. Educators are not gonna heal the brokenness of our world. But I'm telling you, a gospel movement empowered by the Holy Spirit of God that begins to sweep across Ankeny and Ames and Des Moines and Iowa and North America and the nations, that will change people's lives. And we gotta pray with a sense of urgency. Number two, we gotta pray with a sense of 
desperation. We should pray desperately. It's the word prayers. The word prayer is the most generic term for praying or talking to God used in the Bible. But prayer is a metric of our desperation for God. You want to know how, much you're de- how desperate you are for God? Here's the answer to that question. How much do you pray? My friend Daniel Henderson says, prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. You know when you pray the most? When you're the most desperate. Let me prove it to you. You go to the doctor tomorrow. You sit down in your doctor's office to get the report of your annual physical. And the doctor says, man, we've discovered a tumor. And I I hate to say this to you, but there's nothing we can do. You got six months to live. You might not have been a prayer warrior on the way into that appointment. But let me tell you what you became on the way out of that appointment. A prayer warrior. And not only that, you blowing up all our phones. Begging us to pray. You know why? You just got desperate. Here's the reality. We're that desperate. We just don't know it. You see, the church in America, we can do church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks whether God ever shows up or not. We got it down to a system, man. We know how to grow it. We know how to move people emotionally. We know how to create experiences. What the early church, what the global church understood was, unless if God's not God, we're sunk. If God doesn't do this, they were desperate. They were desperate. Number three, we should pray passionately. It's the word intercessions. That word means to plead in the interest of others without holding back because you understand their condition to intercede. You know the problem for a lot of us that are Christians? We've been Christians too long. Here's what I mean by that. We've forgotten what it's like to be lost. You know why we don't pray passionately? We've gotten comfortable being saved. We look at lost people and we're like, oh, look at them. How do they, look how they live. Look at the choices they're making. Can I give you a deep theological insight? Lost people act like lost people because they're lost people. That's deep, huh? You know the only reason you don't act like that? Because God in his grace reached down brought the gospel into your life, reconciled you as his son or daughter, and by his grace has done a work of transformation in your life. Apart from that, let me tell you what you and I'd be, lost people acting like lost people. We're not not any better than anybody else in the world. We just experienced the grace of Jesus in a special way. And when we understand that, we begin to pray passionately. For the people of this world. Number four, we should pray expectantly. Expectantly. It's the word thanksgivings. Paul says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. What are we thanking God for? Here's what we're thanking God for, what he's about to do. In the context of this passage, Paul is saying God's at work in the world, and God's invited us to get in on that work through praying. 
And when we pray and ask God to move, when we pray and ask God, then we begin to thank God for what he's going to do in faith with expectation and anticipation. We say, God, thank you for what you're going to do. And lastly, we should pray corporately. All these all this language in 1 Timothy about prayer is all plural. What do you mean by that? He's not talking to the individual about praying. He's talking to the church about praying. You're saying we're not supposed to pray individually? No, we should pray individually. But here's what I'm telling you. There's something that happens when we pray together that transcends our praying individually. That's why on the opening pages of the book of Acts, you see the early church begin to pray together. And then 26 times in 28 chapters of the book of Acts, you find the church praying together. And every time the church prayed together, guess what happened? God moved in power. The sad reality in our church services today is we don't pray together anymore. I got deeply convicted about this in our own church in Las Vegas in 2015, even though we began as a movement of prayer. Growth happened. We got distracted, forgot how desperate we were in 2015. We'd done the same thing. We'd relegated moments of prayer in our service to moments of transition when we moved the band on and off the stage. We didn't pray to pray anymore. So I got convicted, and we started something in our church where we carved out eight to ten minutes in every weekend service. And I would take a verse of Scripture and lead the whole church in corporate prayer together. Our church had about 4,000 people, more than that my last weekend there, and 4,000 people, and We led the whole church to pray, sometimes out loud, sometimes in groups, sometimes at the altar. We'd pray. People say, you can't do that. What about all the non-believers, lost people who come to your church? You can't ask people to pray. Let me tell you what I figured out. When lost people come to church, they actually expect us to talk to God. Not only that, most of them came to church hoping we'd show them how they could talk to God. And when all we do is let some professional with a degree and a microphone pray with eloquent words, we only communicate that it's even that much further of a chasm for them to be able to talk to God. But when we take a text of Scripture and we open it up and we let the Word become the centerpiece of a conversation we have with the Father, we invite everybody into a conversation with God. And here's all I can tell you. Since 2015, we've seen God do supernatural things that are not normal. Here's what we know. When we seek God in prayer, we experience God in power. And when we don't, we don't. You've set aside from now to Wednesday this season called prepare. A big part of this four days is to seek God desperately in prayer. Don't miss what God wants to do as you seek him in prayer. Let's pray together. Father. pray today that your people would hear your word Lord I need to hear this truth over and over and over and over and over again God may we be a people who pray in just a moment your team's going to lead you in a song of worship And I think it'd be wrong of us to hear a message like this and not carve out some time to just pray. So the team's going to lead in song, and while they're singing, 
you can sing, you can worship with them. Or as they sing over us, you can turn your seat into an altar. Or you can take the front of this stage up here and turn it into an old-fashioned altar. If you're here with a spouse or a friend or a family member, maybe you kneel together. There's a psalm that says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Let me give you a prompt. As you begin to pray, here's the prompt. I want you to pray this. God, you are great because blank. The Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. I believe if we're going to invite God into this week, we begin in praise. So there at your seat, here at the altar, standing with your hands lifted, however you want to do it, in a posture of prayer, the whole congregation together just praying. You can do it silently. You can do it out loud, however you feel led. There'll be people singing, so it's not going to feel weird for you. God, you are great because, and just keep filling in the blank. Just keep telling me, God, you're great because, and you fill in the blank. God, you're great because you're good. God, you're great because you saved me. God, you're great because you've healed me. God, you're great because you provide for me. God, you're great because you're faithful. And all over the room, we're just going to talk to God together. We're going to cry out to God together. We're going to ask God to manifest his presence and inhabit the praises of his people. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Let's stand together. Team's going to lead. You pray. It's God lead.